in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4. We're slowly weaving our way through the book of Romans. This morning I want to speak to you, uh, beginning a little series called Accounted as Righteousness. And that's what Romans chapter 4 speaks to us about. And uh, we're going to be looking into that. I remember as a young individual growing up in the Catholic Church, I was always enamored by the nuns and the, the priests. And, and uh, one little story says there's a faithful Catholic nun who spends her life working in a slum in a poor country, feeding the poor, ministering to the sick, caring for the dying, reaching out to the orphans. And as she nears death, if you could imagine this, you're there with her and you ask her why God should let her into heaven. And she replies, well, because I've devoted my life to serving him. I've denied myself for decades. I hope that I have added enough merits that God will accept me. She dies and she faces the eternal wrath of God because her faith was in her own good works, not in the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. Another story. On death row, a serial killer awaits execution. He mercilessly and horribly tortured, he raped, he murdered many young women. Their families mourn the tragic loss of all their daughters. The prison chaplain visits this killer and finds that he's been reading his Bible. God has convicted him of his terrible sins. So much so that, his, that he despairs about dying and facing God's wrath and his judgment. He knows that he deserves eternal torment in hell. But the chaplain shares that if he will believe in Jesus Christ who died for the ungodly, God will forgive all his sins and credit Christ's righteousness to his account He does believe. He's filled with joy. He goes to his execution at peace with God. And he spends eternity in the unspeakable joy of heaven. As you listen to those two stories, I don't know about you, but that kind of grates on my heart, on my mind. (laughs) You kind of want to scream out, hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. This poor, sweet, selfless nun who gave up her whole life to serve God deserves to go to heaven. And that evil, depraved monster who murdered these innocent women deserves to burn in hell. If that's your reaction, then you may not understand the crucial bedrock message that Paul has been putting forth in this text. That God graciously justifies the ungodly sinner who does not work for their salvation, but believes in Jesus Christ. That's what he's been sharing with us. And he's been sharing that truth ever since chapter 1, really. That's Paul's message in this section of Romans from chapter 3 all the way, verse 21, all the way to chapter 6, even into chapter 8, it continues. He's talking about the simple fact, beloved, that God has provided a salvation, a deliverance from sin, a deliverance from death, a deliverance from hell, and that salvation is provided through one means, by Christ, through His work as a free gift to those who do not to those who believe not by their own works are they saved, but by the grace of God. Now, he's very much aware 
that this doctrine is foreign to the, the readers of the book of Romans, this letter that he wrote. He understands that. Um, as they read through this letter, they're probably aghast at what he's writing. They can't believe. It's foreign to the, the Jews of Paul's day who believe that somehow you earned your way into heaven. And it's even foreign to the pagan people of his day because they had all their system of false religions and they thought if they just did enough in their false religion, somehow God, their God would be, uh, uh, grant them favor due to their human achievement. But particularly here, even more so than the, the Gentile, he has the, the Jewish mind in view. He argues here through Romans that salvation is by grace, through faith. And that's the way God is going to save people. And that's contrary to being saved by earning your way into heaven. And that's what they believed. And so he's been teaching salvation by grace through faith from verses 21 of chapter 3 through verses 31. And now he kind of takes a break and he says, okay, I'm going to give you a real life illustration. And he needs to do that. Because up until now, it's just been kind of theology. It's been words on a page. And now he is kind of giving them a picture. He's giving them an illustration of what he means. And... This man that we're going to look at this morning, Abraham, has become classic proof, an illustration, that one is saved by grace through faith, not of works. I mean, Paul has spent time up to this point telling us how to be right with God. He told us that man is right with God when he puts his faith, his trust in the work of Christ, not by his own work. He's gone over that and over that. And so now he gives them a very important illustration, and he gives us an important illustration. So I want to read the first five verses of Romans chapter 4 for us, and then we're going to look at a couple reasons why he chose Abraham as an illustration, and then eventually we'll get into our text this morning. Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Then he goes on, he gives another illustration of David. But let me share with you just a couple points, and I don't think these are in your notes, so just kind of, you can write these down or just kind of hang out and listen. Um, there's There's a couple things here that you need to know. Why would he use somebody like Abraham as an illustration? Uh, I think, first of all, he understood that Abraham would show the eternal truth of righteousness by grace through faith. In other words, it's not something that Paul is just inventing. He's using an Old Testament example, example because he wants them to understand that, hey, this is the way God operates, and this is the way God has always operated. It shows the eternal truth of righteousness by grace through faith. He's saying it's nothing new. This is actually something old. This is something that in your Jewish minds, readers, this is what he's telling them, you've missed. And I want to remind you of this. This is something very old. Abraham even preceded Moses. Abraham even preceded the identity of the nation of Israel. Abraham belongs really in the the patriarchal period. When you read through Genesis, it's very early on. You run across the name Abraham. And see, if Paul can establish that a man in the book of Genesis was saved by grace through faith and not of works, 
he's used an excellent illustration because he's given them a timeless truth. So it's nothing new. He wants to point out that it's nothing, nothing new. So he uses the example of Abraham. Secondly, he selects Abraham because Abraham is also a wonderful example of faith, right? I mean, nobody in the Old Testament exercised as much or more faith, you might say, than Abraham. And even when you turn to the New Testament, it tells us, the book of Galatians tells us, that Abraham is the father of all who believed. So he's kind of an icon in their mind. And he wants them to understand all who come to God by faith are children of Abraham. And they set the standard for faith by believing God in the most incredible way. Now, the Jews and the rabbis of Jesus' time would not believe this. That's not the view they held. The majority of rabbis in the time of Paul and the time of our Lord, they, they really believed, and the, the majority of them believed, that Abraham was made right with God. He was saved, if you will. He was forgiven of his sin. He was given eternal life. He was chosen by God for salvation because of his character. They really believed this. He was the best man. He was the best man in the world. He was the best man in the generation. Therefore, he was chosen by God to be the father of his people, Israel. And they say that Abraham was a righteous man, and that's why God chose him. See, they got it a little backwards. And so we ask two questions. How could any man be righteous as God sta- at, at God's standard level? We couldn't do that we just by what we've seen. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't say all except Abraham. It says all. And how could this man, Abraham, keep God's righteous standard when it even hasn't been given yet? wasn't given. And so the rabbis answer those questions and they say, well, he kind of understood what it was going to be. He understood what the law was going to be, kind of by intuition, by anticipation. And he had kind of a conscious, a subconscious of God's law, even though God hasn't given his law yet to the people. And so they really believed that he was just a, a good man. And somehow he figured this out before it was even time. And so God selected him and chose him to be their their forefather and all this, and and it was because of his own character, his own righteousness. And so Paul selects Abraham, really, to destroy this myth. He's saying, wait, you you think Abraham was, was saved because he was a righteous person? That's what they believed. And so he uses the illustration of Abraham to kind of destroy that myth. He's not an example of a man who earns salvation by his good works. He's an example of a man who receives salvation by grace through believing. The same way we believe. He yielded his life to God. And so Paul wants them to realize that. I don't know about you, but that's kind of good news. That's good news that we don't have to somehow, if we don't have salvation, we don't have to torture ourselves and figure out a way to get salvation. God graciously offers us salvation, not by our own works that we've done, but by grace, unmerited favor. We don't need to earn our way to heaven. We don't need to have an installment plan with God. Well, I'll do a little bit this year and a little bit this year, and hopefully by the time I'm dead, I've done enough to pay off the debt of my sin. No, that would never work. So he wanted to destroy this myth. Then third reason was not only the eternal truth and then to destroy the myth that Abraham somehow was kept the law. The third reason, he chose Abraham because, as I said in my opening, up until now he's shared basically a lot of theology. He shared a lot of words with them. And so here he gives all these words that he's just shared with them in Romans chapter 3. He gives it flesh and bones. He says, here's what I mean. And so he uses the illustration of Abraham. 
Now, as you go through this, this, this chapter, and you begin to realize, as you read it, that Paul is kind of driving home his point here. He doesn't just state it once and, and, and uh, let it alone. He, he restates it several times. In verses 1 to 8, he basically tells us that we're justified by faith, not by works. And then in verses 9 to 17, he says, not only was Abraham justified by faith, not by works, but he was justified by grace. And then, thirdly, in verses 18 to 25, he was justified by divine power, not human effort. So it, it flies in the face of everything they believed. He was justified by faith, not works. He was justified by the, by the grace of God, not by the law. And he was justified by divine power, not human effort. You know, they believed just the opposite in Paul's day. And a lot of people today in the church believe just the opposite. And so it's very timely that we study this, this text together. And so we want us to understand that Paul here, by selecting Abraham, is really going right for the jugular right away. He's, he's picking their icon, their father of the faith, and he's saying, hey, you think this is how he became saved? By his own righteousness? And so he wants them to understand that, no, that's not the case. Now, the reason they, they believe that Abraham was so righteous is they would pick certain scriptures and they would pull them out of context. For example, Genesis 26.5 says this, Because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And they read that and they say, See, that, that means that he did everything perfectly. He did all that. What they don't say, the scriptures, is that that's why God saved him. They don't say that. They also quote Isaiah 41.8 where he, God speaks of, uh, of Abraham as his friend. My friend. And so they think, well, somehow that forgives all of Abraham's sin and makes him righteous in the eyes of God. And they also use a lot of extra biblical texts that aren't even in the, in the text of Scripture apocryphal writings and stuff, to refer to, to Abraham and how righteous he was. But really, there's no evidence of that in Scripture because he wasn't. He was a sinner just like you and I, and he needed to be saved just like you and I. So we come to verse 5, and I'm going to start at the end of our text, and you read that verse. It's a staggering verse. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Let me just read it again. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That sounds just the opposite of everything that we know to be true, even in our own society. You know, we don't look kindly on people who just, you know, are along for the ride. They just take advantage of everybody just to get their own fill, and they don't, do a, 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 they don't lift a finger to help anybody, including themselves. They're just, you know, fed by the state. Every, the state does everything for them, and they're just, they're just kind of long for the ride in life. And they know how the system works, and they take the most opportunity to really abuse the system. We don't look kindly on people like that. And so it says here, almost, that's what it says, and to the one who does not work. You mean I'm not supposed to try hard to be religious? I'm not trying to, shouldn't try hard to live a holy life? I'll tell you this, if you're doing that before you're a Christian, to earn your salvation, that's exactly what it says. Give up. Because that's not going to save you. You can go to church until you go home, until you die, till you pass away, every day if you want to. I remember growing up, I mean, sometimes certain holidays, we'd have to go to church every week and every day of the week because you had to be in mass to do the, the altar boy thing. And I thought, man, none of my friends go to church every day. Why do we have to go to church every day? But it was just this thing we did. And see, the whole mentality is, 
every time, and it's not whether it's the Catholic Church or any other religion, but that's what the Mass is all about. It's earning God's favor. It's re-crucifying, it's re-sacrificing Christ over. That's why they have an altar. We don't have an altar here. And it's very important for us to understand that. And so here in Romans 4, 5, it says, well, you mean the one that does not work, he's the one that gets the prize? He's the one that's his faith is counted as righteousness? I mean, Paul must have said this, God justifies the one who tries to do his best. See, the Jews would like that. God justifies the nice person who always, you know, you mean well, you love your family, you devote your time and your money to help out the needy, you go to church, you read your Bible, you pray every day. That's the person God justifies. He doesn't say that. I mean, he could not have meant that God justifies the ungodly. That doesn't, that doesn't go well with us. I want to read what C.H. Spurgeon says about this verse in his little book, All of Grace, when he comments about this verse, he says, I have heard that men that hate the doctrines of the cross bring it as a charge against God that he saves wicked men and receives to himself the vilest of the vile. See how this scripture accepts the charge and plainly states it. You thought, did you not, that salvation was for the good? That God's grace was for the pure and the holy who were free from sin? It has fallen into your mind that if you were excellent, then God would reward you? And you have thought that because you are not worthy, therefore, could be no way of of your enjoying his favor. You must be somewhat surprised to read a text like this. Him that justifies the ungodly. I do not wonder that you are surprised. For with all my familiarity with this great grace of God, I never ceased to wonder at it. Do you ever stop and think, why did God save me? See, if you're sitting there thinking, well, he saved me because, you know, you better go back to your roots spiritually. Because I think every Christian when we stop and we ask that question, why would God save me? We have to conclude, we don't know. We don't know. It's nothing in and of of ourselves. Surely. And so I want to help us understand this crucial doctrine because it's really at the core of the gospel. And hopefully, we can wonder together about it. And so he's, he's... hammering at these religious Jews of his days, or any other religious person for that matter, that thinks that somehow they, they're qualified for heaven because of their religion or because of their good works. And he brings up Abraham for the reasons I stated. Now, one of the first things I think that we need to understand is that simply when you think of this text first point, God justifies Abraham by faith alone, not by works. By faith alone, not by works. He's going right back to the theme of boasting. That's what he said in verse 27, right? Remember when we talked about that in verse 27, Romans chapter 3? Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. So we have to understand that God justified Abraham by faith alone, not by his works. Because if Abraham would have been justified by works, he would have had grounds to boast, just like any of us would. And that's what he says in verses 1 and 2. What then shall we was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? He's asking them. And then he gives them the answer. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But not before God. Paul is really asking whether Abraham found some way according to the flesh apart from God's grace to be justified. 
That's what he wanted to know. Did Abraham, was he justified by some other means? Paul's referring to Abraham as the Jewish forefather by lineage. Verse 2 explains, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. You can kind of, one commentator says, when God's viewpoint is considered, Abraham has no right to boast at all. In other words, Paul does not mean that Abraham could have boasted before the people, but not before God. That's not what he's saying. He's rather saying he had no grounds for boasting at all. And so, it seems to me that Paul could be asking his Jewish readers, okay, well, maybe Abraham has some grounds to boast before men. After all, he was a godly man. But when you bring God into the picture, Abraham's boast vanishes. I mean, it's almost as if, think of the illustration of one bug bragging to another bug, I'm taller than you are. (laughs) Just before a human comes along and squashes both of them. Right? It's irrelevant. When you compare humans to humans, Abraham was a good guy. When you compare yourself maybe to, to some humans around you at your workplace or your neighborhood or whatever, whatever, wherever you find, you might say, hey, I'm better than them. But when you compare humans to God, Abraham is just a bug along with everybody else. And Paul's point in verses 1 and 2 is that if justification were by works rather than by faith alone it would give us grounds for boasting. I mean, couldn't you see heaven one day if somehow we could get to heaven by our own works? How did you get here? Oh, man, let me tell you, I went to church 365. I was there every day. And I did this, and I did that. Oh, don't, that's nothing, man. I gave up this, and I went to a foreign country, and I did this, and I did that. And man, I can count thousands of people that know the Lord today because of me. And I mean, we would just have a big boast fest up there. That's exactly why God didn't save us that way. He would not receive the glory. That's one thing you always want to ask yourself in life when you're in a situation and you realize, okay, I don't know what to do. What should I do in this situation? It's not a black and white issue. There's not one is wrong and one is right. Ask yourself this question. What would give God the most glory? How could God glorify himself the most by the choice that I make? So Paul is attacking the popular Jewish views about Abraham here. And he says, you know what? He couldn't have been justified by his works. Then he supports his argument with Scripture. Scripture clearly teaches, second point, that Abraham was justified by faith alone. Verse 3. That's what he says. Hey, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's out of Genesis 15.6. Genesis 15.6 is the first time that the word believe is used in the Bible. And it's also the first time that the concept of God crediting righteousness to anyone, which is justification, is mentioned. We sang that song, justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's basically what that is. He gives us a righteousness that is not our own. Paul not only cites it here, he also cites it over in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, where he's arguing with the Judaizers who said that, that we must somehow add works to our faith in order to be saved. There's that erroneous doctrine creeping around our churches today as well. Well, you're a Christian, that's great, but you, know, you, you have to add something else to it. You have to become baptized, or you have to become a member of a church, or you have to do this, or you have to tithe, or you have to, you know, then your salvation is secure. That's not true. The passage in Genesis raises the question, what did Abraham believe, and why did God credit to him For righteousness. I mean, we know that 
He had believed God previously. Think about Abraham when he left Ur, his homeland, and he set out for Canaan. Tells us in in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Step of faith. So Abraham was already what we would call saved before this experience. So why does Moses mention Genesis 15, 6? That Abraham believed God and that God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Martin Luther said this, that Abraham was justified by faith long before this time. But that it is first recorded in this context in connection where the Savior is definitely involved in order that none might venture to disassociate justification from the Savior. John Calvin thought that it is mentioned here long after Abraham was first justified to prove that justification does not begin, does not just begin by faith, only to be perfected by later works accomplished. Rather, justification is by faith alone, apart from works, from start to finish. See, sometimes we think that. We think somehow that, you know, we're, we're on this track and, and someone makes a profession of faith and then we start teaching them how to talk and how to dress and how to act and, and then eventually they become like other people in the church and we look at them and say, well, they must be saved. And all they've done is learn Christianity. They've learned how to become a, another, you know, rat in the box. They just do everything else everybody else does. See, without transformation, supernatural transformation that can truly transform an unrighteous person into someone who is righteous in God's sight, you are not saved. And whenever God does that, the transformation is true and it's complete. He doesn't save us on a curve. Now, there's a truth to our sanctification, We become more sanctified each day. But we're not talking about sanctification here. We're talking about salvation. Another commentator in Varsity Press, Kidner, he says this, Abraham's faith was both personal in the Lord and uh, propositional, the Lord's promise concerning a son. Abraham knew that through his seed, blessing would come to all the families of the earth. In Galatians, Paul argues the seed is singular, not plural, thus pointing to Abraham's one descendant, Christ. So when Abraham believed in the Lord, he believed the specific promise that a Savior for all nations would come forth from his descendants. How much did Abraham know about Jesus Christ? I mean, he wasn't going to be born for another 2,000 years. He knew more then we may assume. Jesus himself said, your father Abraham, in John chapter 8, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So Paul said that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham when he promised all the nations shall be blessed in you. No, he didn't know Jesus' name, and he had no evidence other than God's promise. Abraham looked forward in faith to God's Redeemer, and thus God credited to him as righteousness. That word accounted or credited, it's used 40 times in the New Testament, 34 times by Paul, 19 times in Romans, 11 times in this chapter. So it's a very key word. It's what they call an accounting term. That's why I have a little calculator up there. It means that God credited to Abraham a righteousness that did not inherently belong to him. That's really what that means. And just to share with you, the word it does not refer to Abraham's faith as if somehow God exchanged his faith for righteousness. Sort of a trade. That would give some sort of merit to faith. Faith alone cannot pay the debt of our sin, beloved. Rather, 
As we said last week, faith is a means by which we lay hold of God's promise in Christ. Abraham believed God's promise about the Savior who would come. And God credited that work of the promised Savior to Abraham through his faith. See, it's all about Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. On the cross, he paid the just penalty for the sins of those who would trust in him. That's what it tells us in Scripture. And so he illustrates here Abraham's experience as recorded in Scripture. That God justifies by faith and faith alone, not by works. And Paul proceeds to apply it to every sinner who will believe in Christ. Well, secondly, not only does did God justify Abraham by faith alone and not by works, but secondly, God justifies any ungodly person who does not work for salvation but believes in Jesus Christ. That's what it says in verses 4 and 5. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. When's the last time you got your paycheck from your employer? They handed it to you personally on Friday and said, Oh, thank you so much for this check. Wow, what a wonderful gift. No, you'd be out of your mind. They'd think you're out of your mind. Right? You say, thank you very much. And you go to the bank and you put it, why? Because it's yours. Why is it yours? Because you earned it. You worked hard. You did what they expected of you. So first of all, he gives this negative example from everyday life that everybody can understand. When you work and your boss pays you, he isn't doing you a favor. (laughs) Favor is literally grace. That's what that means. You don't send him a thank you note. Tell him how much you appreciated the kindness of your paycheck. No, he owes you the money. And if he doesn't pay you, what do you do? You can actually take him to court. And you can make him pay you. Why? Because it's a debt. It's a legitimate debt. See, but the principle of grace by which God operates is different. Under grace, you do not work for your justification. Rather, you believe God's promise to declare righteous any sinner who trusts in Jesus and in his shed blood. Scripture says as a propitiation or a satisfaction for his sins. As the righteous judge, God recognizes Jesus' death as payment in full for all of our sins. I just love the fact that when the second you believe, the moment you come to faith in Christ, you believe in Jesus, you commit your life to him. God bangs that gavel down and he declares, declares you not guilty. Your sins are forgiven. Isn't that a wonderful thing? But he not only removes our sin and our guilt. That's not all he does. What I want you to understand is he does so much more. The moment we believe in Christ, he removes our sin and our, our guilt were declared Not guilty, but he also gives us, he imputes to us the very righteousness of Jesus to our account. Deposits it right in there. Romans 3, verses 24 and 26, Paul says his faith is credited as righteousness. In the context, he means that the guilty sinner's faith was laid hold of Jesus Christ as a perfect and final sacrifice for our sins. Faith is not a work that we merit salvation with, that we merit righteousness. If it were, then verse 4 would be saying the opposite of what Paul was arguing. Faith does not merit God's favor. If it did, grace would not be undeserved. Rather, faith means not doing anything ourselves to earn salvation, but rather trusting, having faith in what Christ did for us on the cross. God justifies us as a gift through faith. Faith is the hand that receives that free gift. 
that free gift of right standing before God, apart from our own works. A couple things that you need to understand about this truth. First of all, to be justified, you must cease from working for salvation. First thing you have to do is give up. First thing you have to do is not work. You know, I started thinking about this, and I, I was thinking this morning, I thought, you know, what is an illustration of this? I mean, can I just go to the government and say, hey, I, I want some money from you? Unemployment. Maybe nowadays you can, I don't know, but <laughs> the way our government is. But what are they going to say? Well, what's the proof? They're not just going to give you some money, hopefully. They want proof that what? You're not working. And if you ever talk to somebody that's on unemployment, sometimes it can be very frustrating for them because they're getting this little pittance from the state that may keep them, you know, afloat week to week. But then, you know, if they go out and actually find a job that can maybe help out, okay, that doesn't, the state says, well, you made this much over there, now we're going to take some of that away. You know, so we find ourselves, a lot of people that are on unemployment today, they say, why do I even want to work? Right? They get to give up. Well, in a weird way, when it comes to salvation, to be justified, you must cease from working for salvation. The first thing you have to do is give up. If you try to blend your works with God's grace, you just muddy the waters of pure grace. You make a big mess. If you were to earn justification, then God owes you something. But God will not be a debtor to anyone, beloved. If you feel bad about your sins and you're trying to get them under control so that God will accept you. You know what? You haven't ceased from working. You don't understand grace. If you think that maybe you should become a missionary and go and live in some slum in a foreign country for years, depriving yourself of the normal comforts that we know here in this country... Somehow, maybe in the end, God will overlook your sins on Judgment Day. You know what? You're still working. You don't understand His grace. To be justified by God's grace, you must stop working. You must give up. You must yield your life to God and God alone. That's what it says. Secondly, to be justified, not only must you cease from working for your salvation, you must see yourself as ungodly. Because God only justifies one kind of person. A person that's ungodly. A person that's ungodly. A person that's a sinner. Through and through. There's a lot of debate between theologians whether Paul was referring specifically to Abraham or whether he meant to contrast the notoriously sinful person with the relatively good Abraham in our text. While Abraham was relatively good, when you compare humans with humans, as I said, in God's sight, we've all sinned and we all fall short of his glory. Abraham was in as much need of God's perfect righteousness as the wicked people in Sodom and Gomorrah. See, that's why it's a level playing field. That's why it must just really cause a lot of grief to God when he sees Christians who have been justified holding their nose or avoiding those who have not, thinking somehow they're better than them, thinking somehow that the world is the enemy. How are you ever going to reach the world if you look at the world as an enemy? The world is not the enemy, beloved. It's not. It's a victim of the enemy. So next time you run into a non-Christian, don't view them as the enemy. You know, Don't do one of these deals to them. <laughs> That doesn't win them to Christ. That just shows them that you're some religious, snooty person that doesn't want anything to do with them. No, they're victims of the enemy. They need salvation just as much as you needed salvation before you were saved. Because it says in Romans 3.10, there's none righteous, not even one. We're all little bugs. So if you see yourself as somebody who's basically good, you can't be justified. 
That's why when you run into somebody and you want to discern whether or not they're a Christian, just ask them a couple questions. You'll figure out real quick. Ask them a simple question. Why do you deserve to go to heaven? See what they say. The wrong question is, well, I go to church. I, wrong. Well, I'm a Baptist or I'm a Methodist. Wrong. What's the right question? You know what? I don't deserve to go to heaven. I don't deserve it at all. It's only because of the grace of God that he's assured me of heaven. Not because of righteousness of my own, but because of his righteousness, of his work on the cross. That's the right answer. Nothing else will do. To be justified, you must see yourself as ungodly and deserving God's righteous judgment. Thirdly, to be justified, you must believe that God will justify you, the ungodly, through the propitiation of Christ's blood. What's that mean? It means faith means taking God at his word. And when he promises to justify the one who has faith in Jesus, he does it. You acknowledge the wages of your sin is death. You acknowledge that you don't want to spend eternal separation from a holy God. But what do you do? You trust God's promise. In Romans 5, 6, it says that while we were still helpless, while we were still in our sin, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Faith means simply taking the gift of Christ's full payment for your sin. Much as you would receive a check from a wealthy man who offered to pay a large fine that you couldn't afford to pay. Faith means trusting Jesus to be your advocate in court, to plead his shed blood in your case before the bench of justice. When you, I've never been in a lawsuit where I've had to have a lawyer watched a lot of that stuff on TV and I've seen some court cases where the defendant has a lawyer but you know what? They don't trust him. They don't trust the lawyer. So the lawyer tells the defendant, look, you just keep your mouth shut and I'll take care of this. We'll take care of this situation. And they get in the court proceedings and all of a sudden they start shooting their mouth off. What happens? They don't, they don't trust their lawyer to defend them properly, and eventually they end up in a lot of hot water as a result of that. Christ is our lawyer. He's our advocate in God's court. And when God says, when Christ says, you know what? He, he's trusted Father in my, in my righteousness. He's trusted in my sacrifice. He's forgiven. It doesn't matter what you do. Do you understand? It doesn't matter. It's covered by the blood of Christ. And fourthly there, to be justified means that God credits Christ's righteousness to your account through your faith. See, if if justification were based on how righteous we were in actual conduct, (laughs) then we could never be declared perfectly righteous in this life, could we? Because we all make mistakes. We all have sin within us to some degree. We all need Christ's perfect righteousness credited to our account. We need our sin put on Christ's account. And that transaction takes place the instant that we believe in Jesus Christ. Spurgeon ended that chapter in All of Grace by telling a story about an artist And this was in the years before there was photography. And he painted a picture of part of a city where he lived. And for historical purposes, he wanted that picture to include certain characters that would frequent the town and be on the street at the time. And there was a certain street sweeper who was very unkept. He was ragged, filthy. That was back before they had street sweepers that you drove. Okay, this is, I mean, they literally swept the streets. So they're just filthy people. And he thought, you know, there's a suitable place for this guy in my picture. So the artist found the man and he told him, you know what, I'm, I'm going to pay you just to stand still for a while. 
and I'm, I'm going to put you in one of my pictures that I'm painting. Well, obviously, the guy was excited. He came to the studio the next day. But unfortunately, the artist sent him away without any pay, without putting him in the picture. And the reason was, it was because he cleaned himself up. <laughs> he came in, he had his face all washed, he had his hair combed, he put on a, a newer, cleaner set of clothes. The artist needed him as a poor beggar. He didn't invite him in any other capacity. And Spurgeon says that if by saying that even so God invites sinners to come at once for salvation just as they are. Just as they are. Come in your disorder. Come in your confusion. Come with your despair. Come filthy, naked, dirty. Come with all your sin. Come to Jesus. Crucified. For sinners. If God justifies the ungodly and you're ungodly, there's hope for you. The best news in all the world is God graciously justifies the ungodly sinner who does not work for salvation, but rather chooses to believe in the work of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that somehow we would overcome our own tendency to want to work for your grace, to want to work for your approval. Even as Christians, we do that. When we fall short, we feel unworthy and we distance ourselves from you and from the people of God because we don't feel worthy. Even though we are worthy if we've been saved by the blood of Christ because the moment, the second we put our faith and trust in Christ, the moment that he transformed us from the kingdom of darkness into light, he declared us not guilty. He declared us sinless, perfect. We have the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the righteousness of his son. And that's what allows us to continue to live each day. It should motivate us to live holier lives than what we do. It should motivate us to fall on our knees and be thankful for your grace. Thankful for those times when we do sin and we all sin. When we do sin, Lord, that you're not there with a big club ready to hit us on the head and kick us out of heaven. But Lord, you're there with the arms of Christ open wide saying your sin is forgiven. It's paid for. It's gone. We thank you for that. Thank you that we can stand justified in your presence. We can come boldly before you, throne of grace. Not based on who we are, but based on the person of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for each person here. I pray for any who have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, have yet to commit their lives wholly and heartily onto you. Lord, I pray that you would do that work as only you can do through the power of your spirit, through the power of your word. Lord, to draw them to yourself. To show them the love you have for them. To show them the work of Christ that was done on their behalf. That they too would become a follower of Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.